For the past year, I've been hearing from friends, family, and strangers that have been concerned about my drinking water, thanks to all of the Connecticut commercials that have been running on TV. It's honestly been a lot of fun joking with all of you about those commercial spots, but I have to say, I finally found the number, and I finally got a Connecticut water system installed in my house. What I learned during the process really surprised me, and it might surprise you too. The Aquarius Home Service Tech ran a free water sample test and showed me all of the chemicals and the garbage that was in my drinking water. The water that came out of my tap before the install was purely disgusting. After using the Kinetico system for a few months, I took a look at the filter and my jaw almost hit the floor. Nasty, rusty gunk clogged the filter and made me see firsthand what I had been drinking. Now we have clean, pure water and my wife and I have peace of mind. No matter where you live, there's a Kinetico water treatment system that can fit your home. Schedule a free water analysis today at KineticoMN.com to have a certified Aquarius Home Service technician hook you up with the Kinetico system today. Trust me, it's life-changing. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Do North Outdoors podcast, where we are here doing Air Fives because we are so excited. I'm Natalie Dillon. Across from me is Travis Frank. We're your hosts. And today we are joined by a special guest, bird hunter, writer, conservation educator extraordinaire, and my friend, Ashley Peters, a.k.a. Grouse Lady. Welcome Hello. to the show. Hi, I'm happy to be here. This is really exciting to be here this morning. We talked about this months ago. For a very so, long time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Ashley and I are actually friends. We got to know each other first a little bit a couple years ago, uh, an event that myself and another woman hosted for ladies in fly fishing and conventional fishing. We met super briefly there, and that was like maybe a week before the world got shut down in 2020. Yeah. But we crossed paths more earlier this year when we went on a uh, girl's trip to the Boundary Waters. We did. We had fun. Had a, oh, it was such a... I keep looking at those photos over and over. Mm -hmm. Like every time I need a break from work, you know, I'll just pull up those Boundary Waters photos. I We got so lucky with weather. We did. Like the best weather I have ever seen in the Boundary Waters over perfect. the course of like four days straight. How Beautiful the campsite. The bugs oh, the were bugs. not terrible well, though. Like, I the, mean, the mosquito could... nets only came out two mornings. <laughs> and actually, <laughs> so, you've been up there before, right? So I actually worked in the Boundary Waters for about a year. Um, I did. What was your, what was your role? Yeah. So conservation Corps, Minnesota and Iowa, which I'll just make a plug here for them because they get a lot of people introduced to the outdoors that maybe wouldn't otherwise. Um, but they have a lot of programs and opportunities for young folks. And so right out of college, that was the second thing I did after a year in Alaska doing the same thing, but you basically do land management work, right? So that was for superior national forest and the boundary waters. And we like we cleared portages, we did trail building, um, we did some invasive species control, you name it, whatever it was that was kind of backlog work that's not getting done mm -hmm. um, by the paid crews, um, then the AmeriCorps members come in and, you know, it's more of an opportunity as a young person to get to see what it's like to be Is up there. Is that a volunteer position? So technically the way that they categorize it is really it's kind of a volunteer position, you get a stipend to do that work. Um, it's not much, right? It's enough to pay your bills and buy some food and that's it. But we were camping out, so it's not like, you know, they, anybody had rent or anything like that. So, um, 
it was really fun though. And yeah, I got to spend the better part of a year up in the boundary waters, um, hiking around. I was, uh, I was helping to set up the project. So I got to do a lot of the GPSing, um, going and scouting before the crews got there, you know, maintaining the, like some parts of Superior National Forest, we'd have chainsaws and power tools. And then of course, when we went into the Boundary Waters, not allowed. You, you can't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was going to say, so could we you bring those in? That's why you're work? so good at using the saw. <laughs> when we were looking for firewood. You were you were the point person. I, I was I was on top of the saw. Yeah, Everybody I was like, needs I miss to have this. their own jobs when <laughs> yeah. you go on trips yeah. like that. We have this like a couple of guys in our crew too that he always fills the boat up with trees and yep. then we mm-hmm. saw him and we have just the most immaculate pile of wood. Yeah. I know? was the water filterer. <laughs> you were the, the water whole, filterer? Yeah, in the, in okay. the canoe, pumping the water. Which is really important. Yeah. You <laughs> yeah. don't want to run out of water yeah, up there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we've I've come across people and I don't know that they were in the same role that you were in, but they were working and coming through a portage that we were going through in the Bondi waters before. And we would strike up a conversation, which I'm fond of doing. Um, you like to chat with people. I do now. Wow. I believe it. Um, news breaking. <laughs> yes. Today. So, <laughs> breaking news, Brandon. Uh, sound by that. Um, I'll get one. You'll put something in there. Uh, so, they would say like, yeah, we're on day 43 or something where they hadn't left the boundary waters right. in that long of however long. What was the longest stretch you ever spent in the boundary waters? Well, I got lucky because like I said, I was hoping to set up the projects. So I actually, when I was working, would go between uh, up the Gunflint Trail almost the whole way, like to Trail's End, all the way from up the Gunflint, all the way over to Ely. It just depended on, we had six, five or six crews around. And so like, I, I basically got to go around to the different crews and would go in with one crew on one project, go in on a different one, take them supplies, you know, so I was field support essentially. Solo missions or with others? A lot of solo missions for me. Yeah. Even the GPSing and that sort of thing. So, um, it was really fun. I miss it. Like being in the field that much, the, the challenge of being in conservation is that the better paying jobs and you know, your ability to like buy a house and a car rely on you becoming a computer, like in office person most of the time. So you don't get as much field time. Uh, the kind of the older you get and the more into conservation you get, which is a little bit of a bummer, but you've always got the memories. Right. And I have, I, I took people's advice to like go and do the fun thing right out of college. Um, and so, yeah, a year in Alaska and a year in the boundary waters and think about that all the time. And it's such a foundation for my work, right? Totally changed the course of my life. I thought I was going to go into like sports writing or sports broadcasting, something like that. Those two years in the woods convinced me that conservation was the way to go and I wanted to be outdoors, doing work in the outdoors. So yeah, that's that was something that really shifted my perspective. I know we have a lot of mm-hmm. directions we want to go with this conversation, but now that you bring up Alaska, like segue. I'm just, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I have just to ask, back. Yeah. what'd you do in Alaska and what's your best story? <laughs> well, I, so I listened to the most recent one with the, uh, the bush pilot. The bush pilot. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, very cool. So if your listeners have not listened to that one, mm-hmm. yeah, highly recommended. Really. Did he, did he touch a nerve that you've experienced up there? Well, I mean, he's been up there a long time, right? Mm -hmm. And so, like, I've lived in Alaska two different times, and the first time was entirely in the woods. The second time was more an office job that allowed me (laughs) to to live there, right? Yeah. Um, So, obviously, you're going to have 
a lot of stories if you've been up there for decades and you're a bush pilot like that's that is the adventure job right yeah. like that is the danger you're in <laughs> yes, it you know? yes. um we definitely ran into bears you know moose um i actually i talk about this a lot when people talk about like being scared of bears and Obviously, some areas are different than others, um, but at least in the areas where we were, the bears were not very scary because it was usually like as long as you made some noise and when you're in a group of people that are doing trail work, you're always making noise. Were you right? around brown bears? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. Because um, we were, so we were mostly in southeast Alaska, but then for the latter portion, we were up uh, closer to Anchorage mm -hmm. in that area. And obviously there are grizzlies up there. Mm -hmm. Um but yeah, we basically, so when I got this, I found it on Craigslist. <laughs> Back when Craigslist was like complete. Is that so still a thing, by the way? Does anyone know? I don't know. Brandon? It's I think like, fast check, I think check. it's still around. Marketplace yeah. Took over. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's okay. still around, but it's mostly spam nowadays. Okay. So this was back when like Craigslist was, you know, like the place Happening. to go for cool jobs and like just seeing, you know. New couches. What you could find. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> totally. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, and I saw an ad for, you know, I mean, it was posted on Craigslist. Obviously there was a, a real site you could go to, to apply to the AmeriCorps position, but it was just like, come explore Alaska. And I was like, cool, that sounds fun. Yeah. Uh, applied to it, did all the research for what kind of gear I would need because everything I needed was on my back for wow. that year. So, you know, you go up there with your tent and your sleeping bag and your handful of clothes and... And then the rest is kind of up to fate, you know, in terms of um, where they put you and <clears throat> what group you end up with. So the first thing they did, though, when I got up there was hand me a chainsaw. And I was thinking, you know, when I was looking at the position description, it said something about chainsaw training. It was like, oh, yeah, we'll probably need that once in a while. Uh, but we'll probably be, I don't know, planting trees or like pulling weeds. I was just I don't I didn't know much about conservation at the time. Right. And then I got up there and they hand you a chainsaw and they're like, all right, we're going to train you on being a sawyer because a lot of the work I did was um, either clearing trails or thinning trees on certain public lands. Um, and so really a huge part of the work ended up being chainsaw work. Um, but I would have never known that like that that's what it looks like on the ground as a conservationist until I did that work. Um, and so obviously by the time I got to the Boundary Waters and Superior National Forest, um, I understood that better. And so then it was about helping other people to understand what real land management looks like um, and how hard it can be and um, how many different things uh, these state and federal agencies have to manage when it comes to multi-use landscapes. Um, that was something new to me also back then was thinking about like, okay, this is county land, this is state land, this is federal land. Oh, this is a national forest versus a national park. And the differences between all of those different mm -hmm. uses and how you manage them and what, you know, state and federal agencies have to think about when they're doing that. Um, so it was a great introduction to conservation because it really gave you the on the ground perspective of what it looks like to do this important work. And really was the groundwork for what you didn't even know at the time was coming with your career and, Correct. and hobbies. Which yeah. we do want to get to. We, you're <laughs> you're truly, but you really are just a wealth of knowledge and experience. And so, I mean, you hunt, you fish, you do conservation. So I think we're already going to pencil you in for another episode <laughs> in the future. Um, but we do, we want to chat a little bit of hunting today. And I yeah. think I've personally been very ex uh, inspired hearing about your story 
into the hunting world. You are now a grouse hunter, woodcock hunter, but it's not something that you you grew up doing or were even doing at the time that you were in Alaska or in the Boundary Waters. So no. how did you enter into that world? Yeah, I look back now and I regret so much not being an angler or hunter mm-hmm. sometimes. <laughs> I all wasn't an angler. Of, all the years that you missed out yeah. on oh, so man. much. When yeah. I was twice. in Alaska, I wasn't an angler yet. Yeah, so, yeah. twice in Alaska uh, I was up there. and How can you go there and mm-hmm. see those fish in the river swim by and not yeah. want to catch one? It's a great question. Yeah. It's a great question. It's impossible, which is, <laughs> is, it makes po- sense. is it possible? Well, I could not. I, I, <laughs> I ran up through the campsite. Yeah. You didn't have your ride. I didn't. We had a vehicle, but the, I was, I ran to every campsite and I was approached it nicely and said, hi, do you have a fishing pole by chance? I just, I just want to catch one of those fish swimming there and then yeah. I'll give it right back. I started fishing the next year. So I think that that probably <laughs> answers yeah. your question. It's like, Gotta, yeah, gotta do that's this. so that's exactly yeah. it. I was up there and the second time I moved up there, so it was 2012, 2013, um, definitely felt like I needed to figure this out. Um, and so started fly fishing towards the end of when I was up there and just enough to catch a couple salmon, but it was also towards the end of the season, which means they're, they don't have a whole lot of fight left in them. Um, but I actually learned to fly fish mostly in Louisiana um, on like sandy bottom creeks and like panfish and it's just getting used to the fly rod. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with hunting, uh, that I think getting into fishing was a gateway for sure. I know in the outdoors field, we talk about this sometimes, right. That fishing can lead to people getting more interested in other things like bow hunting or, you know, hunting upland birds and that kind of thing. And it, it is because you experience the landscape differently. You're going in and you can have a meal because of this thing that you just did, which is an entirely different experience than, Um, Just hiking or camping or backpacking. I did a lot of that. Even foraging, I think, is a really great kind of entry point into understanding the outdoors as a place where you can bring home some dinner. Yeah. Um, But yeah, that all eventually led to me getting interested in hunting. And so I moved back. (laughs) So I've, I've moved a few places. So where are you from and where do you live now? (laughs) So I'm, uh, I grew up in Iowa. Okay. Uh, Detasseling corn was, uh, was something I did with most of my high school summers. Yep. I did that in central Minnesota as well. (laughs) I did tassel. Yeah. It's fun. Yeah. It's definitely a, a coming of age, I think, for any of us that grew up in corn country. And I uh, then went to college in Missouri, ran track there, which is why I thought I'd be in like, you know, uh, sports communications or something like that. Because it was very, my life was very sports focused up until the end of college. Um, went up to Alaska, did a year up there, um, the Boundary Waters. Uh, then I worked for the Minnesota DNR for a few years, uh, doing statewide parks and trails communications. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, I actually helped start the first Facebook page for Minnesota state Ooh. parks. Wow. Yep. Wow. Yep. Uh, I've got some stories if <laughs> anyone ever wants to hear those. Um, <laughs> and then how much up, time do we have today, yeah, Natalie? Much as we, as yeah. much as we want. Have at it. Uh, Alaska and then Louisiana for a couple of years and then back to Minnesota in 2015. And I've been here since. What's your job title today? So I work for the Ruffed Grouse Society and American Woodcock Society as their national communications and marketing director. Yeah. And you just returned from 
a hunt in Montana. Is that right? Did. Yes. And that was for her upland, it's called? Yeah. I was representing the Rough Grouse Society because they're the proceeds from that event go to RGS. Um, and this is a program that came out of Project Upland, if anyone's heard of that. Um, so her upland is kind of a um, an additional program that they have that focuses on getting women into upland hunting. And it was amazing. I mean, it was four days. I was there to talk about conservation and ethics of hunting. Um, but just seeing all of the resources that they pulled together for these women that were learning how to hunt, or they had bird dogs they hadn't hunted, or they had hunted other type of birds, but they hadn't hunted rough grouse. You know, there was a good mix of different skill levels. Um, and so over the course of a few days, they got to do, you know, dog safety in the woods, bear safety, you know, um, shotgun safety, um, talking about the habitat, you know, going over. I mean, it was just about anything you could think of. And um, Courtney Bastion, who helped pull together that whole thing, she looked at me towards the end and she was like, don't you wish we would have had something like this mm -hmm. when we started? And that's really where the impetus for this came from was she, she and others just felt like there really could be more of a package deal <laughs> in terms of helping you understand how to be in the woods. Yeah. Um, because when you start hunting upland hunting and you've never done it before, you don't come from a family that does that. You're laying groundwork that most people if they had a family that did it, they learned when they were five, six, seven, you know, like before they even realized they were learning about this lifestyle. They might not even know what they right. just inherently know totally. because they grew up around it. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And so this really breaks everything apart and says, let's not assume that anybody knows everything. Like, let's assume that we're starting from zero yeah. on just about everything and lay a groundwork. And like, I learned so much, you know, and I've, so I've been hunting since 2016 and then got into grouse and woodcock hunting in 2017. So, you know, haven't been doing it that long in the grand scheme of things compared to a lot of people that grow up with it, but long enough to feel Pretty confident. confident. Yeah. yeah, for sure. And then, you know, there were certain things that they were talking about and, you know, I'd never hunted Montana before. So that was really cool to see some differences in habitat um, and to go out into the woods and see, you know, you're definitely talking about more elevation for mm -hmm. sure. Um, so definitely have to do, I need more training, I think next time. Well, <laughs> Physical training? Yeah. 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 So for people that are either, you know, pretty new, maybe have been upland bird hunting for a couple of years and, and looking to learn more or are brand new, you know, yeah. aspiring, hoping to start this fall or next fall. How important do you think it is to start with a mentor or an organization like that versus, I mean, you know, yeah. learning it on the internet or from a book or, or trying to start out on their own? Sure. I would say it's different, right? Because I don't want to keep somebody from trying to learn if you live somewhere where you can't you don't have as many resources right at your fingertips, but you've got like a ton of habitat, you know? Um, so if you live somewhere where it is harder to find a mentor or a program, there are things like that with her upland where you can travel to go see, to go do that. Um, 
there are plenty of resources. The great thing about the internet, right, is that there are plenty of resources. The key is to make sure that they are reputable, right? Mm -hmm. So um, you do want to be safe. You want to make sure you're following regulations, you know, things like that. Um, But there is always the element of like, at some point you just have to go out and you're going to get some things wrong. Mm -hmm. As long as you're safe and following the regulations, then, you know, you're just going to have to go and do it at some point. But I will say it made a huge, huge difference for me at the beginning of my hunting journey to have several other women who I went uh, trap shooting with all summer. So several of us would go and do that on a regular basis because with hunting, if you didn't grow up in that kind of a family, that is the biggest element that makes makes you nervous or makes you unsure. So feeling really, really comfortable with the firearm before you go into the field especially grouse and woodcock hunting because you're usually dodging branches and hopping over logs and all sorts of things and grouse second decisions correct Mm -hmm. grouse will surprise you Mm -hmm. so um being really comfortable with the safety and handling of your firearm is number one so that's probably my first tip is like just try to get comfortable with a shotgun before you go out because it will make everybody feel better um, to do that. And the rest of it, you can kind of learn on the fly, but that's, that's the thing you really want to make sure you've got (laughs) a solid handle on. So there are a lot of these organizations that have hunts, like you're talking about this one that you just went on um, different chapters, even within your organization, pheasants forever, quail forever, uh, rough grouse society. A lot of organizations have these events, but I, tell people this all the time. If you have the opportunity to invest in somebody, to bring them along, to let them see it, like hunting is not something that you just say, all right, you, uh, you know how to shoot a gun. You're good to go. Right. There's so much involved with every aspect of it that it's, it's kind of like, if you're going to commit to taking somebody out, Bring them for the season. Bring them multiple seasons because you want them to struggle and help them to see it and then achieve success too. And then understanding the rules, uh, there's so much to know about it that there is somebody that's never done it before, it's almost like, um, I, I, I just feel like a weekend just gets them excited about it. And then from there, you're hoping that they take it to another level. And taking on somebody to mentor has such a ripple effect too. I know from being on the other side of it, you know, more in fishing, but it's like when you're taken out and you're showing you, somebody shows you the ropes, it instills, you know, that desire to do that for somebody else in the future. So you're setting up, you know, it does generations of, of hunters. Yeah. And I would say, you know, one of the best things that happened to me was somebody who wasn't super experienced. She'd only been hunting for three or four years. She got a bird dog and her bird dog got her into hunting. Right. But then she wanted to share that experience and wanted more women to go hunting with. And so she was like, I'm still learning. We're all going to be yeah. learning together, but let's go. Who, who took right? you out? So that was Julia Schrenkler. I was going to say, was yeah. it Julia? Yeah. yeah. Julia nice. was a big part of that. Um, how many people has she gotten into hunting? And how oh, many people have you gotten into hunting now? If you want to talk about a mentor who's yeah. gotten a lot of people into it, Julia is just, I mean, she's a jewel, you know, in terms of uh, getting people into it, getting them interested. You know, she really changed my perspective on what hunting could be. Um, I think... It's easy from an outside perspective to assume that you know something, right? And so I think as a non-hunter, I often saw photos of hunting and all I saw was just dead birds. You know, mostly that's like what comes at you. And so 
that doesn't feel very interesting to you as a non-hunter because you don't, when you see those photos, you don't necessarily know what went into getting that bird. All you see is the end result. And so it isn't until I got into hunting and Julie and I would have these conversations about conservation and about like what goes into training the dog and what goes into scouting and all these other things that I really started to wrap my mind around. Wow. Like that dead bird means a lot to those folks because of what went into finding that bird. It's a celebration moment. Yeah. yeah. And so it really helped me translate what I was seeing about hunters in a way that helped me to build expectations for who I could be as a hunter, which is the other thing we don't talk about sometimes in, um, in the outdoors world, but I think every different pursuit you do brings out a different part of your personality and kind of brings out a different, like, identity of who you are. Like, I'm a different person when I'm out fly fishing versus out hunting. Like, they're just different modes that I'm in, I guess. And Julia really helped me to understand that, that you can be all those things, you know, you can be the person that doesn't want to step on the caterpillar. And you can also be the person that goes and shoots birds. It's not a conflict. In fact, it is part of being a conservationist is to basically embrace the, the, what we would see typically as conflicts, but actually it's just, it's all part of it. It's all giving back and taking once in a while and thinking about how you're affecting conservation in the outdoors as a whole, right? Is there a piece of that entire hunting experience, whether it be the conservation side, the, the being in nature, the, you know, even the cooking side that you feel like you could pinpoint is like really the thing that did it for you, that drew you in? Because it, it's become something that I know you put a ton of time and effort <laughs> towards. Um, so is there, is yeah. there one or two things that really stand out for you or is it just the experience overall? That's a great question. Uh, and I think if I had to really go back, it's always the people. I mean, the pursuit itself is great, but it makes a huge difference to be around people that you just really like um, and to be outdoors with people who make you feel comfortable and you have fun. Like, I honestly don't think I would have gotten into hunting if I had been pushed to go with, I don't know, like my uncle when I was, you sure. know, 16. Well, make sure he doesn't listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's just different, right? Like there's a different attitude or an approach to things. And for some people that like, just push through it, just do it, you know, like who cares? Like you know, everything out the window, that kind of an attitude would be something that, um, you know, some people respond well to when they're young. They're like, oh, this is fun. Like I get to just go and do stuff. But uh, I was a very anxious teenager. And so I wanted to know every little detail of something. And so I can imagine that if I had been pushed to do it then with a certain person, it probably wouldn't have landed the same as it did when I was in my late twenties and coming into it with somebody who was really happy to like sit and talk about every tiny little question that I had and was just really patient and understanding because she had just gotten into it and she had just come from a perspective of not having grown up hunting. And yeah, so I, the people make all the difference and being able to find those people within the outdoors and hunting and conservation, um, it just really sustains you because anytime you have a question, you you know who to go to to talk to or if you need to vent about something, like even if it's about your own hunting, you're like, oh, I, I totally blew it this last time. Having people that you can talk to and connect with and um, just relate to 
I, I don't know. Like the outdoors is definitely the underpinning, but it's really the people that keeps me coming back. That's it. You brought up such an important point that I think, you know, going to what we were talking about earlier about being mentors for others, or if there are individuals listening to this that are, you know, parents or have nieces and nephews or neighbors that they're trying to get into hunting to really pay attention to what that, you know, new hunter or kid is what they need out of it. Because yeah, some people probably are better off to kind of be pushed and get out there on the cold drizzly day and experience that. And and for some people, they might respond better and enjoy it more. And they might keep coming back with a different type of mentorship experience. So yeah, I've been really encouraged to hear more and more uh, like kid focused uh, communication about being outdoors, you know, how the adults can adjust their expectations when they're outdoors with their kids, because I'm not going to lie to you, that also helps those of us who are newer to a pursuit because somebody has to go through the process of thinking about like, oh, this child doesn't know these specific things. Like I really have to point things out. And as a newer hunter, that was the case. Like I needed people to point things out to me that they felt like was super obvious or they felt like was just second nature. But if you haven't grown up in that, that's not necessarily Mm -hmm. true. And so I think the family-friendly, kid-friendly conversations we're having are advantageous, not just for the families, but also for those folks who are just getting into hunting and might need a breakdown more than, you know, the average person um, who's grown up with it. Hey, Minnesota deer hunters. If you're heading into the field this season, the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources is asking for your help to stop the spread of chronic wasting disease. Here's what you need to know and need to do. Step one, find your deer permit area number. Step two, find out if mandatory CWD sampling, carcass movement restrictions, or other CWD regulations impact your hunt date and locations. Step three, make a plan. You may need to change your traditional steps. Find your deer permit area and all the details that you need to know at mndnr.gov slash deer hunt. That's mndnr.gov slash deer hunt. This episode of Do North Outdoors podcast is brought to you by Sportsman's Guide. For everything you need to enjoy the fun, freedom, and traditions of the outdoors, you got to check out sportsmansguide.com. From hunting and fishing to camping, hiking, and just hanging around a bonfire in the backyard, you'll find it all at Sportsman's Guide. Tree stands, blinds, rods and reels, ATV accessories, and so much more. Clothing and footwear, too, from top-notch brands like Scentlock, Nomad, Mountain Hardware, Irish Setter, Danner, Ah, the list just keeps on going. Plus, a full line of firearms, ammo, and accessories. The bottom line, if it happens outdoors, you'll find it at Sportsman's Guide. Shop today at sportsmansguide.com and use the code DUNORTH for $20 off your first order. That's DUNORTH, all one word, for $20 off your first order. I have young kids that, um, I talk about this a lot on, on our shows, that they've been coming hunting with me and fishing with me since they were three years old and now they're hunting too. I mean, my oldest is eight and he shot his first duck on opening day in Minnesota. Life-changing experience. My nephew is, is with, he's 10. He got a duck the same day. Oh, Uh, did he? You know, he got his first dove. We're excited about grouse hunting uh, this season and pheasant hunting too. Yeah. And it's, it's all about these experiences and I've got this little herd of kids that go wherever (laughs) I go and it has absolutely changed my hunting world having them with in so many ways. And it's not about me and it's not about the necessarily getting the animal. I mean, I think we go through as hunters, we go through different 
phases as you're learning. Then all of a sudden you learn a lot. Then you kind of have this desire to do really well out there. And it's not like it's just bloodthirst type thing, but it's this, I want to prove to myself that I can do really well. And then all of a sudden you want to take it to another level where you want to share that with people and then you're passing it down. So I've heard a lot of hunters that have talked about this, you know, the evolution of a hunter and, and where you're at. So for me, it's bringing a lot of people out and experiencing them. I think our goal today, Ashley, is that uh, when we're done here, that we're taking, <laughs> Natalie has this this flame lit Yeah. that hopefully- It's burning. Yeah, that mm. we can take to another level and yeah. another level and get her out there. And then all of a sudden, who knows, in a year or two, she might have herself a dog that mm-hmm. takes her to you different places. You think Benny's not the dog for- I'm not for saying Benny <laughs> couldn't do it. I'm not going to go there. A canine has a nose that He'd is 10,000 times more powerful than ours. And if he smells a bird, you don't know what he'll do there. But uh, <laughs> there are a lot of breeds. And like we were talking before we started recording, how a dog can change everything too. It did for yeah. Julia. Yep. And it yep. then ultimately did for you. And I'm excited. I'm actually hunting with Julia this weekend in two days. Awesome. Yeah. I'm yeah. looking forward to spending she some time is such in the a woods. Blast. Yeah. She's got energy and excitement. Yeah. And that stuff is contagious. It is. Yeah. That's it really makes a difference to be around somebody who, like I said, she was she's so intentional, right, with what mm-hmm. we talked about, but it was never like a drag. It was always like, let's talk about this because it's going to make it more fun for you to understand the safety or the logistics that go into this, Mm -hmm. because then you'll understand what's happening, you know, and that did make me feel more confident and comfortable. And so then I could have more fun. Right. Yeah. Um, So she's, you know, she's the kind of person I think people should look to as an example of, you know, the patience and the thoughtfulness that goes into introducing somebody to a sport because I know for a fact that there are folks who almost didn't get into hunting because they had a bad first or second experience. And the problem is when you just started something, you don't have all these data points over the years to go off of in terms of what this sport or pursuit can be like. You have one or two examples of that. And if one of them is a really bad experience, Mm -hmm. it's tough to get the motivation back up to go out and do it again because you're afraid you're going to have a similar type of interaction. So on that topic, I, I go two ways with it. Um, it, it really depends on the person. So yeah. like if you're taking somebody out, you're bringing them with like, let's say we're going to take Natalie out. Like, okay, we need to look at her drive and what we know about her and say, I think she can handle tougher conditions, Sure, you know, yeah. versus somebody else that might not be able to. Well, I look at my kids and I have one that I could bring out in a blizzard and he's going to be like, <laughs> we are we going again tomorrow? And I look at another one and I say, he might want different, um, you know, like I don't just bring them out for every single hunt. If it's really cold, I wanted to make sure that they're ready for that. Or I wait for a better opportunity right. because each different experience that we're going on is a first for them. Yeah. Sure. And I keep reminding myself that. So I'm trying to make it about, their experience, but there's also a lot of value to them seeing the harsh realities that come with the challenges and not succeeding. I don't want to make it like, I don't want to basically have a bird hanging on a branch that mm-hmm. they can take. You want you know? to l- lull them into false expectations for yes. future right. hunts. You know, we're yeah. taking yeah. Uh, my nephew, he's 10 now, so he can go on the youth deer hunt. And my buddy and I, who we've grown up hunting together since we were old enough to legally hunt, 
um, lifelong friends, and we were talking about it, and we're driving home, and both of us agreed that we kind of hope he fails the first time. Sure. We don't want to take him into a field that has 75 deer that are going to walk out and be like, (laughs) take me, take me. You know, like the reality is it's not a success every time. And it is about the experience and getting there. So we both thought if, if he doesn't get one, that's a blessing right off the bat. Mm -hmm. And we do think over a four day window, we're going to put him in a position to have success, but it's, it's not about getting this 10 point buck. Mm -hmm. I mean, so I, I, I'm rambling a little bit here, but I think it's important to put people in a position that they're comfortable with to leave them wanting more. I a lot of times take people fishing or hunting and when it's going well, we leave on a mm-hmm. high note Yeah, because then we leave them wanting more. If all of a sudden I know rain's coming in and it's going to get wet and miserable, I don't want their last memory to be, I was cold and soaking wet. That sucked. Yeah. I don't yeah. want to do that again. Yeah. And you bring up a really good point, right? Because everybody defines good or bad experiences in different ways. And when I was saying bad experiences, I was thinking more on the the side of like, you're out with somebody who makes you uncomfortable or feel unsafe or unsupported, or mm-hmm. like you can't express what you're feeling or going through. Whereas when I said that you were thinking like, oh, didn't get, you know, didn't get the bird or didn't get the fish or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there are different ways, right, to perceive good and bad when it comes to outdoor experiences. To your point, you have to build expectations for the kind of conditions that you're going to experience. Because, I mean, certainly with grouse hunting, usually those kind of soggy, cloudy, like, drab days those are some of the best days in the woods so you're not looking for always picturesque conditions um, and you're not always going to get birds or whatever you're pursuing Uh, but I think the key right is having the support you need and having a quote-unquote good experience in the sense that like you feel like the person you're with outdoors is trustworthy and that you can talk to them about whatever it is you're going through so um that's kind of what I meant by like, if somebody goes out the first time and they don't feel supported in that way, that can make them must, much less confident and willing to go out the next time because they just assume that feeling of uncertainty is always going to be there. But we know that over time is how you build that confidence. It's just over and over again, getting outdoors that you have to build that. Brandon's yeah. laughing. Okay, Brandon, welcome to this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> Did I make you feel comfortable when we went pheasant hunting yeah everybody made me feel comfortable yeah the, the two times i've unsuccessfully <laughs> gone hunting yeah. is yeah yeah everybody made me feel really comfortable actually it was yeah it was a lot of fun what regardless. was going through your mind when we were heading out into the field that you maybe questioned or were like trying to mentally prepare yourself for physically shooting something was really yeah. the only thing going through yep. my head i mean gun safety was I'm still freaked out by guns. Like I've handled them a handful of times. They freak me out still to this day. So I'm overly What freaks cautious. you out? They're guns. I mean, it's good to have a proper amount yeah, of, I mean, you know, it's, it's that respect and that. Yeah. 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 It's a lethal weapon. If, if it can kill an animal, it can kill a human. I mean, right. it's, it's very right. simple. So, and I haven't held a lot of guns in my life. I think the first time I was shooting was with Tony Jones, the Reverend Hunter, oh, yeah. like two years ago or something like that it was the first time I ever shot a gun. Um, so that's first and foremost on my mind is the gun. Where's the barrel pointing? Is it open? All those things. And then second is 
I haven't actually shot anything yet. I don't know if I could physically or mm -hmm. mentally or whatever it is handle shooting something. Mm -hmm. So I'm waiting to see, you know, I'm waiting for for the bird and everything like that. But I'm also going like, I don't know, can I really pull the trigger, shoot it? <laughs> oh, if I hit it on accident, because there's no way I'm going to hit it on purpose. Not that good of a shot. If I hit it, then how's it going to feel mentally? Sure. Mm -hmm. That that was my biggest concern, honestly, just because I haven't. Really Have you been there though when yeah. birds or other animals are are shot? Okay. Nope. Nope. The most I've done is fishing. Yeah. And so that was a big so I haven't hunted either, but I've accompanied, you know, friends and and things on hunts just to try to get over that kind of emotional hurdle of it. First of all, I was just excited to see dogs work and just feel the experience yes, and also make yeah. sure hunting's been something I've been wanting to do for a lot of years. But I just wanted to make sure I could that I was ready for yeah. that yeah. experience. You know, I'm a meat eater and everything, but I think it was really helpful to me. I went with Christine Kessler. That was, I think the first time, yeah, that I was actually present for when we were pheasant hunting and when okay. she, she shot a few and being there, experiencing it, going up to the birds after, and then even, you know, helping her clean the birds. Mm -hmm. I think that was a big hurdle for myself. And I, I for sure had to, you know, go check yourself a, a couple bit. deep breaths yeah. and like, okay, this is, you know, and I've, I've cleaned fish before yep. and I've kept them, but there is something different. And to me, that was a great experience. Again, going out with somebody who I very much, you know, right. trusted and, you know, just seeing it firsthand and being like, okay, I'm ready to do this now. I think I can go do it. So, well, and that's yeah. for me, like, it's all I know like, yeah. as, from as long as I can remember, I've been cleaning game, fish, mm -hmm. wild animals, eating them. And, you know, like I make that our normal family situations As all, it should be. all year yeah. long. Yeah. So my kids, they're cleaning fish, you know, already. Uh, and when they shot the ducks on their first ducks, I, we, I started showing them on the first bird and then they did their own. And same thing with turkeys. Um, but I will say, you know, I'm learning all the time too. Everyone responds differently. I took a guy out that he makes hearing shooting protection for comp or for like the army and and people but he wanted to understand the hunting world so he could grasp like what he's trying to make for hunters and i and i invited him to go on a hunt turkey hunt and uh he accepted so we go out on a turkey hunt and uh, i mean we were we snuck out in the dark and i think he was enjoying every part of it and all of a sudden i called burp, 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 and go 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 and I go, get ready and this bird comes flying in, running to the decoy, like sprinting across the field. <laughs> We're not hunting for like eight minutes, you know, and it's a turkey, a big wow. old top running and it stops at 10 yards and I go, take him and he shoots and it, it just rocked his world. He, we walked up to the bird and he goes, I don't want any, I don't even want to, like he wouldn't, he didn't want to touch it. He didn't want to see it. He didn't want to eat it. He didn't want any part that of it. And an it was, obstacle. I was like, a lot I, of people I didn't mm -hmm. know what to do in that situation. Mm -hmm. Cause I was like, um, Okay. You know, I had to like reset instantly, never expecting that yeah. this would be the outcome here of his success in that moment. But he, I doubt he'll ever hunt again, even though his experience was magical in my <laughs> mind. Like, beautiful morning, yeah. you know, yeah. this pinks in the sky, beautiful. This bird calls back and runs <laughs> in and I'm like, Dude, <laughs> yes, yeah. that was like the like the perfect mm -hmm. turkey hunt, you know. Hey, not everyone needs to hunt. We're we evolved as hunter gatherers. Sure. Some of us are meant to hunt. Some can <laughs> yes. gather. Yes, but. absolutely. So I, if seeing that kind of uh, reaction and that experience, I guess what I'm trying to get at is it's important for me to see how everyone is affected a little bit mm -hmm. differently. 
And it helps me to put things into a little bit more perspective too. Um, you know, as somebody who cares about bringing other people out there and, you know, like, yeah, Brandon, I don't know what's going to happen when we go pheasant hunting here in a couple <laughs> we'll, of weeks. We'll have you, to see some pheasants yes. first. That's mm-hmm. that will start there. But yeah. well, we're not going to take the boss's lead and go to his spot. That's, yeah, I guess no I. sloughs, no swamps, no water. Maybe <laughs> another story for idea. another yeah, time. You guys will have to report yeah, back. Yeah, yeah. yeah, totally. We yeah. came back with water up to our chest. Oh boy, you know, it was not. Yeah. yeah, the appropriate place to enough about us. us. Back well, to you. So Ashley, there is so you're again such a wealth of knowledge. There's so much that I want to you know ask you about today and, and learn from. But I'd say I know you've done a a ton of work, uh, very detailed tutorials, both written work and you know speaking engagements for you know the how to get started. And we won't be able to go through all of that today. Yeah, we can maybe sure. link to some of your articles um, in the podcast. But if you were to say maybe one, uh, you know common mistake or pitfall or, or challenge that you would recommend people who are, you know, new, either brand new or again, within the first year of bird hunting, that's, you know, a common challenge that needs to be overcome that you could give advice on. What yeah. would that be? Um, gear. I mean, there's just no other way around it. Um, obviously it's great to have a mentor that understand, but if you're getting started and, and you want to know how you can feel most comfortable, it really is gear. And I don't mean you need to go out and drop a ton of money. I just mean you need gear that fits you. And for me, when I started, I had a lot of stuff from trail running or from, you know, going backpacking. So there's a lot of gear that can cross over if somebody's just getting started. It's just making sure that that gear helps you be comfortable in the outdoors, prepared, right? Layers is something that anybody who does any outdoor pursuit understands um, because you're going to get wet probably. You're going to step in puddles. I mean, um, something interesting about grouse and woodcock hunting is that I originally started with just like some leather boots, but most of the time now I actually wear a pair of extra tufts, like a pair of um, rain boots basically uh, that are really comfortable for me because you're in so much water. And if you're the kind of person where your feet being wet bothers you, you find the right boots, find the right insole, and you can make a pair of rain boots or muck boots work for you. So um, I really would say make sure you've got the gear that you need. And that includes a shotgun too. Um, Especially as a woman, I found that it really makes a difference to have a shotgun that is fit to me. Um, So I had an inch taken off the back of one of my um, over-under shotguns. And that made a huge difference, especially later in the season when you've got three layers of clothes on. Mm -hmm. And so instead of trying to bring up the shotgun way out, you know, way out in front of me, I was able to actually get it up to my shoulder. Great advice. Yeah. Because a lot of times it would get caught on the underside of my armpit when I'm trying to bring I, in grouse and woodcock hunting. You really have to get that gun up. Very One 1,000. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> it's over. It's, it's so I was waiting for 2,000. Yeah. yeah okay. there's no so 2, even, yeah. even the action of pulling the gun out farther to bring it back in because of your, your coat or whatever, that, that stock being just a little bit too long, it made all the difference for me to have an inch cut off the end of it. Um, so there are things like that, thinking about your gear, making sure that it fits you well, that you're really comfortable with it. That is number one, because everything else is secondary and everything else will come with time. But that gear stuff makes a huge difference for every single experience you have outdoors. Can you tell us a little bit about your process for scouting land to hunt on? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, 
honestly, it takes time. I mean, I don't care how many apps and maps are out there. At the end of the day, it's always about getting on the ground and seeing what's there. You just have to, um, especially when you think about, so um, for Grouse Opener this year, I was up there with several friends, including Julia Schrenkler, um, and I actually went up a day ahead of time to go scout. So I had already done work um, so there's an app called Scout and Hunt, and then there's also Onyx. Um, there are also maps of, um, so Onyx has some of these, but you can look up like the Ham Lake Fire, like the outline of where that was in the Boundary Waters, because a lot of times with grouse hunting, you're looking for places that have either recently been cut or burned. So uh, Scout and Hunt can help a lot with like the timber maps, um, as Onyx Hunt can too. Um, but knowing the burn areas is just as important because you've got the disturbance in that area and you're always looking for, you know, uh, it just depends, like four to 15-year-old cuts yeah. or burns. So, um, why do they that, like burn areas? So grouse um, And is are, it just grouse or is it woodcock? Too. Okay. Grouse and woodcock. So the young aspens are your key yeah. areas. And so I just got out of the grouse woods and there's a new layer on onyx onyx maps if you if, if you ever want to upland bird hunt you have to get the app it is literally the difference in like walking blindly and knowing one where you're walking on land so you're not walking on Making private sure property not, yeah, yeah it shows the boundaries what kind of land yeah. it is but like for instance with rough grouse there's a layer called disturbance forest disturbance right. layer mm-hmm. that's yep. cheat code for finding rough grouse. It really, it simply is like a cheat code. Um, It tells you when that particular area maps out kind of the edges of what was logged or a disturbance. And so like this last weekend, I knew that 2015 would be just golden. That's seven-year-old aspen growth is kind of falls into that perfect rough grouse prime habitat and rough grouse is you know we can get into habitat and how that affects them but they're directly related to forest uh, management and young forests in particular well and it also has to be balanced um, because you can't just have endless aspen and all the same age and you're going to get grouse there really does have to be a mix of forest types in the area Um, it helps if you have you know like up on the north shore if you're hunting an aspen patch but you come across like an old yellow birch that can sometimes be an indicator that like oh there's there's probably something here because you want a bit of a mix Um, and a lot of grouse so like we were just out hunting in montana right and there really wasn't aspen where we were. It was mostly alder and pine and brushy stuff. So it it just depends on where people are. Certainly here in Minnesota, we're very lucky because we have more Aspen than most Midwestern states. I think we have the most Aspen of any Midwestern state. Um, and yeah, you definitely find grouse in there. <laughs> yeah. And also too, but, I mean, just to help people understand a little bit, grouse like edges. Definitely. So if you have this big you know, it might be a 10 acre stand of aspens, young aspens, but it butts up to uh, like a clearing in the field or a swamp or something like that. Like you all, I always work those edges around and you yeah. almost always find them near the edge and yeah. a mixture of different um, species. And I, I did a story one time with the guy I call him the grouse father, but he's over in Wisconsin, Park Falls. And that's just like prime rough grouse area in the country. And every year he logs 
a couple different pieces of his property. He's got 400 acres and he'll do like three cuts uh, in different spots. And he likes to have a variety of different forests. So he'll do like a five acre cut and then 10 acre cut and like a 15 acre cut. Yeah. And then the next year he does another one. So he's always mixing it up. You can tell us what a healthy forest looks like. And it's different. Hunters understand it. Non-hunters don't understand. They see a tree going down and they're like, what are you doing? You're cutting trees. You know, that's terrible. Yeah. But in reality, it is beneficial to wildlife and to everything to have that balance. Yeah, I think uh, woodcock banding is a really great um, kind of bridge, I think, for folks who don't hunt. Um, so my friend Katie, who doesn't hunt, um, she works with me at the Rough Grouse Society. And a year and a half ago, uh, we went up to Pine Ridge Grouse Camp in yeah. northern Minnesota. And we went out with one of the biologists, one of the folks that does um, some guiding. And she showed us how you find woodcock with her hunting dog. But of course you don't have a gun on you, right? You're looking for the chicks, you see a hen flush, and then the birds are there, you pick them up, you band them. It's not that easy. <laughs> making it sound <laughs> it really easy. Family, it seems like it is that easy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But one of the great things is that, you know, that was one of my first experiences too, right after I had started hunting. And what it does, I think, is helps you see just how many other species are in there. Because when you're in the grouse or woodcock woods uh, in the fall, a lot of the birds have migrated, like migratory birds are mostly already gone. Um and so in the spring, they're all colorful and calling and there. And so uh, the woodcock banding, like doing that for science, right? So that's a cool purpose that goes into it. They're also strutting amazingly. Yeah, <laughs> the right. The cool woodcock strut oh, that goes viral the, every spring. The little woodcock dance. Yeah, <laughs> so cool. Uh, but, you know, I think for folks who don't hunt, that gives them a chance to experience what we're talking about with like disturbance ecology and having woods that are a mosaic of different age classes and different species, that diversity makes a huge difference in terms of resilience. When you think about um, invasive species and um, things, you know, that can take out whole sections of trees, you know, we're going through this with emerald ash borer right now. Right. Mm -hmm. And we had entire cities plant nothing but ash. And then you have emerald ash borer come in and suddenly you don't have trees, mm. right? So it's the same kind of concept with forests where you really, you want as much diversity as you can get. And that's both in young, middle-aged and old forests, as well as different types of um, tree species. Because, I mean, especially right now, we're just seeing all sorts of changes to different climates and um, different places and it's hard to tell sometimes what our habitats are gonna look like in 50 years the best option for that is to try to diversify things as much as you can. Um, but to what you were saying um, a little bit ago, Travis, um, when you look at grouse and woodcock wood, you want to see something. <laughs> it used to be checkerboards back in the day, and they've definitely moved away from that, right? Now it kind of looks more like blobs interspersed with each other. And um, I always like to think that a good forest is kind of like a good mullet. You know, you've got the different <laughs> sections and you, <laughs> yeah. you got to keep it in shape. Right. But yeah. it might be uh, in forests. It does move around, though. Right. So you want different age classes in different areas, but you want the shorter, younger stuff. You want the middle aged stuff and you've got to have the older stuff, too. Um, and with woodcock, you even have to have open areas, 
right? So um, last year when we were hunting, we actually found some of the best woodcock habitat was young forest right next to a clear cut. And it's because woodcock love to use that um, open area for their sky dance in the mm-hmm. spring. So mm-hmm. that's something yeah. else that's cool about the spring is getting to see those birds do their mating they go display. Up and they do this weird. Yeah. Have you ever seen I, it, Natalie? I don't think I've seen that. So I'll go, need to look do that a up. YouTube yeah. search on woodcock dance and then woodcock, yeah. uh, what would sky you Sky dance. I know sky the dance, dance. Yeah. Yes. Okay. It's a really yeah. funky, cool bird yeah. in their own funky, cool yeah. ways. Yeah, and their their wings like whistle yeah. uh, during that dance, and so like if you're standing there watching it, you can see you can hear them painting in the background. Like, mm-hmm. You know, yeah. you can hear that in the background, and then they go up into the sky, and sometimes they'll fly over you, and you can he- kind of hear their their wings whistle, and then as they do, um, they do kind of this free fall that mm-hmm. also you hear that whistling, and it's just. They're just really cool, charismatic birds. And so when it comes to talking about hunting, a lot of times I start by helping people understand the personality and mm-hmm. the the interest in the species itself. Because I certainly love to come home from a hunting trip with a meal, but also how many of us have stories about seeing just a grouse through an opening and that flight was so beautiful that even if you didn't get the shot, it stuck in your memory because it was just so cool to be there when you got to see this like free fly. And I'll never forget. It's called the king for a reason. Yeah. The rough grouse. We were, when we were in the boundary waters, you were pointing out the drumming and I, you know, and I'd heard it before, but it was cool to see your excitement and pointing out. And then what was the species of grouse that we saw? If you yeah, share. we had a you spruce were, grouse yeah. right in our campsite. Did you? On mm-hmm. my birthday. Yeah, on your birthday. Yeah. <laughs> well, happy birthday <laughs> yeah. to you. Yeah. So I was going to ask cool. you about this because just a couple of days ago when we were in the woods, they were drumming still. And so there were different theories being thrown around. Why? So in the spring, you know, we're talking about this yeah. cool woodcock, but the most like iconic sound up north for people is to hear the drum of a, of a rough grouse. And they say it sounds like a engine starting mm-hmm. or something like that it's yeah. really really cool i've done stories on been i've sat in blinds and watched them come on their logs and perch and drum for hours so and hours cool. it is so cool uh, it's why so cool. are they doing it in the fall ashley what's the official have reason you, for it have you tried to ask the grouse that <laughs> <laughs> well you're the expert here so i mean the best uh the best explanation i've heard for why they think they're not totally you know i mean there's no fail-proof way of knowing for sure but um i've heard that uh some of it has to do with like the temperature and the light is very similar to what it is in the The spring. spring, And so it kind of, you know, registers that like, Oh, I should be doing this thing. Also some grouse are just not super smart. And so like they get really territorial and if it's close enough to spring, you know, like I'm, I'm going to go do my dance. I'm going to flare out my, the rough on my neck and fan my tail and, why not try? You know, like that's, yeah. I, I don't know. Grouse sometimes are not, uh, yeah, not the smart. They're great flyers, but they're not always the smartest. I think it's so interesting <laughs> that it's not, it's not a vocal sound that they make. It's actually with their wings. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. It's the moving air, air. Yeah. That is their, their wings move mm-hmm. so fast that it pushes the air. So it's not actually their wingtips hitting that you're hearing, but you're right. hearing just the air. mini push. sonic booms that come mm-hmm. off of the, off of the wings and they go so fast. Like they, yeah. And then they sit there and then they look around like, 
hello, ladies. Did you just hear what I did? You know, and they're sitting on this log that they do it, and they'll do it all night long. Yeah. All, you know, like, yeah. it's dark when we snuck in, and we knocked him off the log, and we're like, oh, he'll come back. He just he yep. wants the ladies to hear him. And sure enough, comes right back yeah. and struts on there. The, the, the beauty of a rough grouse, if that's a bird that somebody would hunt for the first time, Natalie, if this is the first thing that you would hunt for, when you get a rough grouse, it's, I, in my opinion... I think it's more delicious than a farm-raised chicken that you would They're go really buy at good. the grocery store. Yeah. In order of taste, rough grouse is the top. Mm-hmm. Um, so really not good. only is it a, a, just a rich experience to be yeah. out there, um, if there's a dog involved and the dog goes on point, you get to see how the whole thing works. But then bringing it back and, yeah. and cooking it up, mm-hmm. and I think you would really enjoy the final finished product every time I, I wasn't already sold I am now yeah I mean when we were up there I don't bring I a couple years ago I stopped bringing a lot of food with on hunting trips I hope that we're successful and when we are we cook them up right away our meals were the birds that we harvested that day this past trip that we were on and that to me is just like the most fulfilling thing. We're sitting down and everyone's tired. Dogs are curled up. They did their job and we just have a full <laughs> belly. And it's just like, oh. We like food on this podcast. Best. Oh, yeah. It's the best oh, time yeah. of the year. Yeah. I mean, that's that was a big thing that got me into hunting yeah. was I wanted to feel more connected. And so like this trans, you know, this transfers to the conservation aspect of what I do is like the why is such an important part of why are you going to go hunting? Why are you interested? If you do it as an adult, you've got to have some kind of inherent motivation to keep going because it's not always easy. And there's a lot of stuff that comes up that can discourage you from being a hunter. But for me, it was so much of the why, you know, so it was the food getting to like try new recipes and look into how do you, you know, how do you have seasonal meals, right? So the game that's seasonal, the foraging that's seasonal. Um, But the other piece of it was this, I was suddenly connected to something so much bigger than just the food on my plate. I suddenly understood, you know, when the very first time I ever had pheasant tacos, for example, like I'm eating that taco and I'm getting flashbacks of the day that we had hunting, right? So like, I'm like naturally thinking about these wide open fields, amazing habitat. Um, And it's the same thing with grouse and woodcock, where it's like, I get to feel good about advocating for healthy forests and healthy mosaics um, that support all kinds of wildlife, moose and songbirds and, you know, a wide range of different species. And so getting to do that on top of having a good meal, on top of being with friends, seeing the dogs work, like it just really, in a lot of ways, um, I, so I talked to Tony Jones about this a couple of years ago. Conservation has really kind of become my religion in a lot of ways. It drives so much of how I think of my life day to day, the way I value my time outdoors. You know, so it's just, um, it's really something I think the hunting side of things can lead to feeling more deeply connected to the world around you and having a really deep sense of place, right? Like I know the woods in Minnesota, like I never, like anywhere else that I live because I punch through them every fall for grouse and woodcock hunting and occasionally get out in the spring for things like fly fishing and um, doing the woodcock banding. And so it just kind of, everything comes full circle, I think, when you can see it not only as the meal on your plate, but also that meal on your plate is representative of 
all these other things that are in my life that mean so much to me. So yeah, it's, um, I'm excited yeah. to get you into it, Natalie. I'm excited too. <laughs> you know, while we're talking about uh, conservation, I'm curious when we're talking about, you know, stable or strong populations of these birds, how much is that, if, if you, if we have this answer, yeah. how much of that is dependent on the habitat and the food available to them versus, you know, weather or yeah. predators, human or, or animal? Do we know what the biggest things are that impact these populations and how can we use that yeah. to inform, you know, how we act in our behaviors? Definitely. That is a great question. Thank you for asking. It's a lot to throw at you with a few yeah. minutes left. But. No, this is great. I mean, it's, it's what we think about every day at the Rough Grouse Society and American Woodcock Society. And so habitat is habitat, 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 right? Like it gives them the best chance possible. Now, weather certainly has something to do with it. Predators have certainly have something to do with it. So um, everything's impacting these birds. But if you think about it, like, you know, if you go out on a hunt on an empty stomach, you're going to have like a much worse time if things go wrong because you're hungry on top of everything else. You're, you don't have energy on top of everything else. And it's kind of the same for grouse and woodcock. We want to make sure that they have the habitat they need for breeding. We want to make sure that they've got the food availability nearby. And that is going to give them the best chance possible against things even like West Nile virus, right? When we look at the research, everything says the best thing you can do for them is give them high quality habitat. And then you try to make things better on top of that. But if you don't have that high quality habitat, everything else is going to be 10 times harder on them. So, yeah, yeah, habitat, 100%. It, it really is um, everything for species from pheasants to grouse to deer to bear to moose. Yep. I mean, it really is 100% everything because weather can come come in and wreak havoc. And a lot of times the havoc that it wreaks is because they don't have sufficient habitat to survive it. If the habitat was better, they could survive those tough conditions. If it's predators that are able to get them, it's because they don't have the habitat to escape. Hunting seasons don't, you know, a lot of people say, you want to protect these birds and you're out there shooting them? It doesn't make sense. But the reality is when you're hunting for them, the amount of birds that you take out of the population is only just a tiny fraction. If the habitat is there, they will survive, they will thrive, they will be more. It's a renewable resource. An average grouse is, you know, if you get a two-year-old grouse, that's pretty old grouse, you know, three-year-old is very rare. Most of them only live a year, you know? So that's the case for pheasants as well as, you know, even a deer, you know, a deer, if you get a a deer to reach four years old, I mean, it's like one out of every 20, maybe. I mean, it's, it's, that's the reality of the, the world. Life life is tough in the woods. And we were just, (laughs) we were just talking about this, that, uh, uh, when I was out hunting in Montana, that for some species, you're almost doing them a favor because some of those older species, like their teeth get ground down. Mm. They're like, I mean, life is a carnivore they in the woods. They might be going out that, can that fall anyway. pretty painful if you, you know, if you're not taken out by something. Um, so, you know, that's not to say, right, like that we don't need to look at the population levels overall. There's a good reason, right, why we work with state and federal agencies sure. to pay attention to what the surveys are telling them, um, what we're looking at in terms of population is why we have bag limits, right? And so uh, 
But that all ties back into being a responsible, ethical hunter, you know, thinking about what you're doing and thinking about it beyond just the one moment that you're hunting, being able to pull back. Um, you know, just this last weekend, we went to an area and it was like someone had already hunted that area. And so it's like, all right, well, we don't, we don't need to take any more birds off of this particular spot. And so some folks, you know, really, um, I think lean into that, that you want to leave something, uh, beyond just you being there in that moment. And, um, that all ties into that bigger picture of like, how are you impacting not only the landscape that's immediate them? immediately in front of you, but also how are you impacting things into the future? And then that takes us all the way back to like getting (laughs) new hunters into this, right? Because the more that we even educate people about what hunting is actually about, the more likely you are to have people who are ready and willing to join in efforts to make sure that we have public lands, that we have access to those public lands, that we have high quality habitat being put onto those public lands. Um, And then that we're also working with our private landowners to make sure that it's not just the public lands that are being taken care of. So yeah, it, I mean, it all comes together. For sure. And you're affecting people that you don't even know about, you know, with social media on top of it now, they see you do. Natalie, I'm not trying to put pressure on you, and I don't want, I almost don't want to say this, but the reality is that there's a lot of people that watch what you're doing mm-hmm. and they see you enjoying fishing and they see you enjoying the outdoor world. If they see you hunt, they're going to say, hmm, yeah, I wonder if that's something I want to try. For you sure. know, it's going to make them think about it. And that's just the reality mm-hmm. of the position that you're in. So Something to be conscious yeah, of. Yeah, something that well, we all even this carry. podcast, right? Like pairing up like someone who's primarily fishing and outdoors with someone who I mean, you go hunting a ton, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but showcasing that like we we can all, you know, learn from each other and even if somebody doesn't hunt getting a better understanding mm-hmm. of what it is and what hunters actually are thinking about and what they care about and what that experience actually is. Because I certainly had to learn that for myself. Um, and that only came through an introduction through somebody who did hunt. So yeah, it's, it's really great. We are about out of time for today, but along these lines, you do a great job of at your own social media of telling the full story, which I love of, of hunting. You, you really show it all from start to finish. You show the personal experiences, the people that you meet, you know, the, the joy, and you do a lot of education on top of it. So for people listening at home, where can they find you? So I also run the Rough Grouse Society and American Woodcock Society's social media. So uh, you can find us on any platform uh, for Rough Grouse Society. Um, and then I'm also Grouse Lady on, let's see, Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, Facebook, and uh, TikTok. Yeah. And Instagram. And Instagram. And Instagram. Yeah. 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 Uh, they're, they're getting to be too many. I'm like <laughs> starting to have to have a list in it's front of me lot. of all the different platforms. You do a yeah. great job. And it's been so great having you on today. You definitely gotten me excited. Are you? This Are you ready really to go? Yeah, I, I mean, I've been ready to go for a long <laughs> yeah. time. So we just got to so put some dates together. So what's our next step yeah. to get Natalie out there? Yeah. She couldn't go to Grouse Mess. I know. Is there another hunt coming yeah. up? Yeah, we, we will figure yeah, it out. We've, we've been we'll communicating a little bit, looking at a few of Nice. Stuff, I can't wait to hear yeah. about this. Yeah. Yes. It's going to happen. We'll make it happen. Yeah. Thanks for all you do and for, for being here today. Thank you for having yeah. me. This was great. Yeah, thanks. All right, everybody. That is it. But thank you for listening to this episode. And we'll see you in a couple oh, weeks. Oh, can I tease next episode? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we dig really deep into oh, yeah. understanding the health of wildlife 
Um, there's a lot happening in this state in the Midwest from deer to moose to elk to waterfowl. Uh, we've got some biologists coming in to talk about what is really going on in the woods with these animals and what we can do as hunters because, hey, it's hunting season. <laughs>